Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Matt Unberg, Vice President of Operations at Alterock Energy, and Dr. Ghazal Izadi, Senior Global Advisor of Geothermal and Unconventionals at Baker Hughes. Alterock Energy develops and commercializes geothermal technology, and Baker Hughes is, well... Baker Hughes. What you may not realize, Baker Hughes has provided geothermal energy services for decades. And what we are talking about today is just one of those services specifically focused on the reservoir modeling. Recently, there was a press release made by Alterock and Baker Hughes announcing the initiation of super hot rock geothermal development at Newberry Volcano. I'm excited to dive in today get answers to all of my questions that I have about this new development project. Matt, Gazal, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and introduce us to your companies. Uh, Joe, thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Um, So my name is Matt Uttenberg, VP of Operations at Alterock. Um, Alterock Energy has been around since 2007. It was started by Susan Petty. Um, one of the, um, I guess, founders of <laughs> commercial ge- uh, ge- geothermal in the United States. She's been around for a long time and has worked on many of the projects throughout the United States. Um, the key focus of the company over the past 14 years has been developing EGS geothermal technologies to improve economics of traditional geothermal resources. Um, to that end, one of the largest projects that we worked on was the Newberry Volcano EGS demonstration project located right outside of Bend, Oregon. Um, We've done two rounds of stimulation there, um, one in 2012, one in 2014. Um, But these haven't really progressed because of economic reasons. And because of those economic reasons, we have been recently pivoting towards SHR, which this podcast will talk about. Gazelle, can you introduce yourself? Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Matt. Uh, I'm so excited to be here with you. My name is Ghazal Izadi. Uh, I am working more than 10 years uh, in the field of geothermal and uh, unconventionals. So uh, it was very interesting that how I uh, started to work on Newberry during uh, my, my PhD thesis when I was uh, in Penn State, uh, working with Susan and team on this uh, exciting, uh, super hot EGS project at the time. Um, and then uh, when I joined Baker Hughes, I uh, worked globally on the multiple uh, complex projects in unconventionals globally from North America to China, uh, um, Latin America, Argentina, multiple projects in Middle East like Saudi, uh, 
Oman, uh, Abu Dhabi. So I think during these past 10 years, I learned a lot that how we can adopt technology and advancement and what we learned from oil and gas and how we can deploy some of this technology for a harsher and high temperature environment, like what we are dealing in geothermal. Uh, I also have experience on product development and software development uh, for uh, fracture propagation and understanding the uh, fluid interaction with rock. And I think uh, based on the work that we did with Alterock uh, uh, on Newberry recently is uh, is something is very relevant to what we have learned uh, during past few years by bringing not only subsurface knowledge, but advancement in the numerical modeling and computational horsepower. So about Baker Hughes, uh, so you know that uh, we are uh, committed to carbon reduction. So Baker Hughes carbon reduction commitment includes three major pillars. So these pillars include uh, the acceleration of Baker Hughes carbon emission reduction to 50% by uh, 2030 and uh, net zero carbon by uh, 2050. Uh, the pillar two is promoting customer carbon emission reduction. And uh, the third pillar uh, is uh, including developing a new energy portfolio that explores the energy transition frontiers. And geothermal is one of that. Um, so we have established a multidisciplinary dedicated geothermal organization uh, to better support our customer, as well as technology development uh, and energy transition in this space. So by that, uh, I would pass it to you, Joe. Thank you for those introductions to Baker Hughes and and what what y'all are doing in the energy transition space and to Alterock Energy for for everything that you've been doing in geothermal and high temperature geothermal. Today we are focused on on super hot rock geothermal, so hotter than than what most people will think of even when they talk about geothermal. I think that we need to set the stage for everybody because super hot rock geothermal is kind of this new term and this new this new field even in even in geothermal. So can y'all give a a quick 5 minute geology slash history lesson on Newberry Newberry volcano and its geothermal development? Yeah, yeah, I'll take that up. Um so Newberry um, Volcano um, was the target of geothermal development going back actually into the 80s uh, with Cal Energy, and then later Davenport Newberry Holdings. Um, there have been wells that have been drilled at the site, but uh, up until now, all of those have been, um, none of them reached permeability, so they did not flow. Um, Alterock bought the site uh, in the early 2010s, um, right around 2011 or so. And uh, began a process of EGS demonstration. So, at the time, the target was to develop power at around eighty to one hundred dollars per megawatt hour thereabouts, which was competitive at the, the time of the planning, um, using EGS technologies and specifically technologies that Alterock had developed uh, in around two thousand eight, two thousand nine. So, those first stimulations took place in two thousand twelve, two thousand fourteen. Um, and we were able to stimulate a reservoir volume um, in around the target well. So we used an existing well that was already at the flank of the volcano. Um, and we, we, were, we were successful, but we were not unable to drill a second well. 
Uh, so that's just a quick overview of what Alterac did at Newberry. But then pulling out um, greater context, Newberry exists within the Cascade Range. It's located in central um, Oregon. It's actually a part of the Ring of Fire. Um, there, there is some debate on that. Actually, the volcano is located at the intersection of a uh, fault zone called the Brothers Fault Zone in the Cascade Range. And so there is some debate whether it is completely tied to subduction or maybe possibly uh, a result of a hotspot, the ancient hotspot there. But um, the predominant theory right now is that it's part of the subduction complex of the Cascade Range. And for a larger context, the Cascades are part of uh, the Ring of Fire, which comprises the large amount of volcanoes that you see around the Pacific Ocean. These are all the result of subduction. Um, subduction is oceanic crust going underneath the continental crust and melting and forming volcanoes. Great. Thank you for that for that quick history lesson on Newberry Volcano. And I think that, that you stated in there a few times talking about permeability and flow, the location being the ring of fire and for for context, where where a lot of the larger geothermal power plants are in the ring of fire associated with some type of subduc- subduction volcanic arc. And a lot of these just kind of flow naturally with water, right? So yeah. we really, when you say permeability and couldn't flow, what I'm understanding is that there's just, there's really no water to pull that heat out with. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, a typical geothermal uh, resource, what you need to have is permeability at depth. And so because of stresses, most likely you have a open fractures in the subsurface and these fractures filled with hot water. Uh, in a traditional geothermal system, um, you drill into those open fractures filled with hot water or steam, you pull it out and produce power. Um, the, the context is not always favorable to open fractures, and, um, and and they are also hard to target in some cases. So there could be an existing system at Newberry, but no one has hit it yet. Um, but in traditional geothermal, where you see it on the side of a volcano, that's what they're doing. They're drilling wells that intersect fractures in the, um, the heart of the volcano, filled with either steam or water. And now, what is super hot rock geothermal so super hot rock geothermal it's um it's supposed to be a broad encompassing term it all it really means is that rock um resources that where rock is 375 celsius or greater and the reason for this is that's where the um critical point of water is so it's actually 373 or thereabouts but um that's that's what we're trying to say is um, we're targeting resources where there is supercritical water in the resource. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, there are some properties of supercritical water um, that make it uh, advantageous for AGS development. Um, specifically, the viscosity of water um, is drastically reduced. Um, but it also has a fairly large density um, for the amount of enthalpy it has. So it has a fairly high enthalpy. Uh, and that's the energy contained in the water. It has a relatively large density, and it has a very low viscosity. And so all these qualities make it a, um, a good uh, material to do heat mining with. Um, and so, and then also power production. So that's kind of why we're targeting those. Uh, and there's, there's possibly some advantages to targeting these temperatures with the rocks as well. 
Um, and that's something that we are exploring through testing. So, uh, Joe, I want, uh, I want so in addition to what Matt mentioned, I want to emphasize on the difference between different uh, resource uh, condition and uh, uh, hydrothermal versus uh, EGS or uh, super hot rock uh, or super critical. So it's very interesting what we see today uh, around rings of fire from uh, Asia Pac all the way to what we see in uh, California or Washington in North America. So there are three significant components that we need to understand, right? Sufficient heat, sufficient fluid, and high natural permeability. So when you look at these traditional uh, geothermal wells, there is, because we have uh, sufficient heat and fluid and high natural permeability, we don't require to artificially stimulate the reservoir. And we uh, can deploy and leverage uh, existing technology. When we are talking about EGS or enhanced geothermal system, or some people call it engineered geothermal system, we have sufficient heat, but we don't have sufficient fluid or the natural permeability is very low. So that's why we need to uh, stimulate artificially, or we call it creating the reservoir. And it requires technology improvements, especially when we are talking about uh, higher temperature uh, uh, with more lithology complexities, uh, and also uh, how we can look at economics, right? So both techno-economics uh, evaluation of these type of reservoirs is very different than what traditionally we look at in geothermal. And when it comes to EGS and super hot rock, they I can, I can mention some of the commercial uh, uh, active projects uh, or some demonstration as well as some R&D projects. So it goes back to a Churchill country in Nevada uh, when we had in Desert Peak uh, the, the, the EGS project as well as in Raft River in Idaho, the Alter Rock projects in uh, Oregon uh, as well as uh, Calpine EGS demonstration in um, California. Some, some of these projects are in France, as well as Forge, which is the new project that uh, we are working on, as well as uh, geothermal wells of opportunity in Nevada and California, and EGS Collab project in South Dakota. So there is a lot of uh, knowledge that we gained in this domain, and there was a lot of technology uh, deployed in these fields. Uh, but we are so excited for the future of supercritical and uh, super hot rock because it adds more complexity in order to make it economics. But these challenges allows us to bring new technologies, new type of mindset, and how we can make uh, move geothermal forward with much more energy, right? And power output. Yes, yeah, thank you for, for that explanation of traditional geothermal versus the enhanced geothermal systems or EGS versus what we're talking about here, super hot rock being the basically the the rock conditions, it's super critical. And I really appreciate you upfront saying it it ultimately comes down to economics. So I think we need to talk about that a little bit because as we talk about drilling to hotter, deeper, no water kind of zones, these super hot rock sections, all I hear is more expensive, more risk, more challenge. So help me out here. What am I missing? Why are we targeting super hot rock 
at a place like Newberry and and why not why not keep going after that regular EGS? Why not drill that second well that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, no, that's yeah. So this is very important. Um, the reason why we are pursuing it, this um, resource is because the prize is the greatest prize. It is if we are able to do this, we will be able to produce economic power, uh, power that costs about the same as natural gas um, anywhere in the world. Uh, and so that's the target. Um, and here's how it works. Uh, because the enthalpy of the water is much higher, so you know around 2,000 kilojoules per kilogram, maybe technical for you guys, but uh, it's greater than that. Um, in the EGS system, if you're developing, uh, let's say, 200 sea water, and you're cycling it through, you're probably producing enthalpy. Uh, enth- the enthalpy of the water you're producing is probably on the order of seven to 900 kilojoules. So it's it's more than double, maybe triple, um, the energy density of let's say a typical EGS system. And then on top of that, um, when you produce higher enthalpy fluids, you have much higher um, efficiencies in your power plant. So uh, a binary turbine, which is what a typical EGS system might use, could have as low as a seven percent thermal efficiency. Um, you know, sometimes it goes up to 11 or 12, but it's pretty small. Um, whereas if we were to produce steam from the, the reservoir, we're talking more along the lines of 15 to 20, 21%, um, maybe even higher for producing a uh, supercritical runoff. So it's, you know, double, maybe four times as efficient in some cases. And so uh, what, what this leads to is a power output that's around five to 10 times greater than a traditional EGS well. Um, therefore, all you have to do to beat the current EGS systems are to drill and complete a well for less than five to 10 times the cost. Um, so that gives you a lot of latitude. I mean, these EGS wells are well over $10 million probably. So we're talking as long as you're under 50 million, let's say you're, you're likely to beat existing EGS. Um, and that, that gives you a lot of room to maneuver. Um, there's an additional uh, cost reduction here as well, which is because you are able to produce so much power per well, um, you can actually have much larger power plants. So on the order of, let's say, 200 megawatts or thereabouts. Um, and because they're deep and you're going to angle them, you can have a fairly small well path as well. So you save cost on the surface equipment and you save cost on the power plant because of economies of scale. So a 50 megawatt power plant is more expensive in marginal terms than a 200 megawatt power plant. And all these things have cascading effects. And what it it leads to is a much more economic power source. So I would say this. The way to think about it is um, the constraint for EGS systems is more of a thermodynamic problem, um, right? They're they're kind of on the very edge of economic um, feasibility because of thermodynamics. Um, In the case of SHR, uh, the thermodynamics allow you to have very economic uh, power. However, the, the biggest challenges are actually technical. So it's just merely, can we make a fracture and cycle fluid through those fractures? Um, and, and I think that's, that's the key here, is that one is a technical challenge and one is you're kind of butting up against physics. That's really interesting. Gazal, did you have something to add? I just want to summarize what Matt mentioned because it was a great summary that uh, Matt described uh, the situation. But in summary, greater energy density per well 
needs to be attained, right, uh, for conventional EGS at that temperature target. However, we see that in uh, some of these cases, uh, it's not possible. So how we can improve energy density, right? So this super hot rock resource, uh, as I mentioned today, we have a very advanced models to look at the physics behind the rock fluid interaction to see that how the heat capacity and heat flow works in the subsurface by capturing the subsurface complexity. So we see this resource can be, uh, bring five to 10 times higher production, right? Compared to conventional EGS. And not only it's on the power output, there are other uh, benefits and advantages. So uh, like water requirements to create these reservoirs, uh, to stimulate these reservoirs. And we see that in some areas in the regions uh, around the globe, uh, we have a lack of uh, water supply, right? So how we can reduce the uh, water supply and water requirements as well as uh, surface area, right? Because it's direct to emission control uh, on the infrastructure side and how we want to deal with these wells, uh, comparing uh, super hot drug versus EGS. So there are other components uh, that is uh, play a key role uh, in order to uh, reach to this net zero and this carbon emission target that we're all looking uh, at. Yeah, yeah. On that point, let's talk about the modeling a little bit because I imagine that these are these are very detailed, highly complex models. As you've pointed out, we're talking about fluid flow. We're talking about the energy transfer and the the energy density within the subsurface and for these geothermal systems for for those who are maybe just now listening to my podcast most of most of the geothermal systems are planned for 20 to 30 year lifespans so how do you how do you go about making a model like that yeah so uh, i would like to uh, emphasize our today's focus in Baker Hughes, right? So uh, it's not only about subsurface. We need to link subsurface to surface. We need to understand uh, the resource potential boundaries, right? We need to validate the resource. And then we need to link the engineering design into the resource capacity. And it's not only limit to the subsurface. And as Matt mentioned, it all goes to the surface uh, facility design and engineering piece that what type of power plant we need, what is the capacity, what type of material we need to use based on the fluid composition and as well as temperature, pressure, rate. So we look at it today as a holistic system model. So subsurface is one piece, uh, surface is another piece. And we need to link these two components, right, in order to make a project online faster with less cost by assessing the risk and mitigate the risk. So in this project, we start with the subsurface characterization. And because a simulation of the reservoirs was a key component of this uh, study, we look at geomechanics and stimulation modeling uh, to look at the fracture system, permeability, porosity, as well as uh, uh, igneous petrology and lithology, thickness of geothermal reservoir and seals. Uh, we look at uh, some of these borehole geometry measurements, which is a, a good indicator of the fracture and subsurface stress. 
We look at the fluid gas composition for heat exchange and well design. The other uh, thermodynamic uh, component is about thermal conductivity, diff diffusivity, heat capacity uh, for extracting energy from the reservoir versus time. And the other piece, which is very important, is about the rock. Uh, so what is the rock properties? And this dictates us how we need to treat this rock during the stimulation. So what type of uh, pressure, what type of uh, injection pressure, rate uh, we need in order to enhance the fracture network connectivity, conductivity, and ultimately permeability. The more important thing that we learned during this study is the permeability distribution between the injection and production well, and the interaction of the fluid with these geomechanical characteristics of the rock, which is a stress, uh, fracture system, fracture size, distribution, initial permeability in this fracture, how much open fracture we have. And ultimately, we start to design the well and design the well in terms of well trajectory, as well as injection production, uh, uh, well uh, spacing, and uh, how ultimately we can come up with the best economic scenario in order to have to maximize the production performance uh, in this system. Matt, anything you want to add to this uh, um, this part? Yeah, no, you did a great uh, overview of that, and I want to stress the idea that. Uh, we need to use holistic models. Um, one of the things I would bring up uh, and highlight here is that in typical geothermal resources, what we do is we uh, explore the resource. We get an idea of what maybe it could produce. We drill the wells and then we kind of we're stuck with whatever wells we have. And then we try to optimize the power plant around what we have. And there's still a level of uh, uncertainty there. Um, with these systems, you have far more control. So, uh, in essence, you actually have some ability, theoretically speaking, to optimize the subsurface uh, reservoir. So you can say how many fractures you want, what, what is the angle of your well. There are a lot of um, knobs that you can turn to optimize the subsurface. So you're not only optimizing the subsurface, you're also optimizing the power plant. So you're doing the two together, and it's actually a pretty uh, complex modeling and design problem. Uh, but it allows you to attain, you know, uh, better economics that way. And so I, I just want to stress that key point here is that we don't necessarily have to accept uh, what nature gives us. We can do design in the subsurface. That's a very interesting point. And I want to, I want to talk about that as a quick tangent. I'm just curious, how, how long does it take to run one iteration of a model like this? Mm. So it all goes back to uh, amount of data, right? Different type of scale of the data in terms of, because in some cases we are dealing uh, with different uh, data scale from cuttings uh, analysis to core to log data all the way to the seismic features, right? So how much uh, complexity we can capture in our model. So if you have the data, we can model it, right? Uh, in the in the EGS projects, we need to uh, expand our workflow because we have more steps to take in order to reach to our economic model. Uh, fracture stimulation, 
and understanding that how the uh, fluid interact with rock and ultimately impact on the conductivity is another uh, extra step we take compared to uh, conventional geothermal. And then reservoir simulation uh, or heat flow dynamic system that how uh, we transfer the heat from injection into the producer. So today I want to announce that uh, uh, our uh, dual suite subsurface platform that we, we were using to uh, map all the reservoir characteristics and build a 3D static model is on uh, Microsoft Azure. Uh, so why it's important to have that in the, in, the, in the cloud system is because we can improve the efficiency and we can uh, use more horsepower to run these simulations much more faster. Um, uh, and uh, and that, that, that is how we are looking at for the future, that how these components could be more optimized. But the other uh, challenge here is that how we upscale our model, right? Uh, as I mentioned, we are dealing with different scale of data. And in order to make these models run smoother and faster, we need to upscale in the right process. And we are learning from uh, all our reservoir engineering expertise that we gained from oil and gas, how we can deploy with extra cautious because geothermal reservoir is different. We have more challenging components like chemical reaction and heat transfer or thermal component. So all these can really uh, lead us to, that, to see that how this modeling system works and how we can make it more efficient in terms of runtime. So what I heard was it depends. <laughs> but yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, in this case, we were we were uh, running these models right because there are different phases. So first, we mm -hmm. need to build our uh, geo model right to map the properties, yeah. and then you are stimulating this. But it depends on how many fracture you are, have right. What is your fracture systems look like? How big is your model right? What type of resolution you are? So we test multiple scenarios to come up with the most efficient one and you can go from days to hours right so that that is what wow. i want to highlight that when you gain more confidence in your model and your assumptions right and the, the resolution of your models without uh sacrificing the physics so you can accelerate learning digitally with these models much much quicker yeah i want to really stress this point is that um i won't go into too many details here but Baker Hughes was critical in, uh, in allowing us to um, iterate on a bunch of ideas, design ideas, and test our assumptions. So we, we ran multiple cases, and that allowed us to reach what we believe is an optimal design for these kind of systems. But um, yeah, the process of developing this, it, it will take iterations. Yeah, I think the 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 complexity, and I think it's in it's important to emphasize just how just how complex these models are and and how Matt you said earlier that that you can optimize the subsurface which is well not a normal it's not a normal way to think that we can go ahead you know I was about to say I so I the models I I don't think believe you can optimize it all in one go uh, from the model I, you have to run multiple scenarios and then kind of explore the parameter space and go from there but um, yeah. but I, it allows you there is an there's a chance. So just like you know, oil and gas has optimized its process of extraction of oil or natural gas from unconventional resources, 
we have this we have the same potential here in geothermal um we can use these modeling and design techniques to you know for uh, optimize extraction and get the cost down I would like to highlight on that one, as Matt mentioned, right? So because of the high level of uncertainties, right, uh, that it, we we are proposing this multi-concept model. So how we can um, how we can uh, come up with a solution in P10, P50, P90 scenarios, right, by looking at different uh, uh, stratigraphic fault models, structural models, fluid models, right. Uh, area definition and ultimately how this property map into the 3D grid. So today we have this capability in our models to develop this algorithm, right, to allow us to look at it from different uh, uh, perspective, right, because of the uncertainty. And this modeling has a different phase. So when, when you look at um, uh, resource exploration all the way to the field development, so before pre-feed, we gain a lot of knowledge from dif different scenario modeling and look at the best and worst case in order to have that in mind that what type of what type of result we may see. So, and this is go back to what I mentioned on the risk. So, how we can assess this risk during the different phase based on the uncertainty and what is our game plan to mitigate this risk? I think this is this is a, a very key critical in order to operate compliantly and also uh, uh, make sure that you can execute your plan. So I, will, I would like to more highlight that these models is not only allows us to understand what is going on on the subsurface, but also it allows us to understand the risk and mitigate the risk for uh, uh, perfect execution. Yes. Yep. I understand that entirely, and I, I think that's a, a good way to highlight it and explain really the the goal of the modeling is to to understand the subsurface, understand the potential uncertainties, ultimately to execute to the best of our abilities and to understand the the risk. With that idea in mind, one of the one of the risks that I see with supercritical, I guess supercritical wells that have been in existence. The, the one that comes to mind is the Iceland Deep Drilling Project number one in the Kropla geothermal field up in northern Iceland. Oftentimes, these, these supercritical wells have highly corrosive environments. So I'm curious, thinking about super hot rock, thinking about Newberry Volcano, and thinking about the super high resolution and, and detailed modeling that has been performed, how do, you, how do you attack a challenge like the corrosive environment that we would typically see coming from supercritical conditions and supercritical fluids? Thank you, Joe. I can take this one. Uh, it's very interesting you mentioned about uh, Iceland uh, deep drilling project with Baker Hughes drilled this well. It was the hottest and deepest uh, well ever drilled, right? Uh, plus 300 degrees centigrade, a uh, very challenging environment, uh, very corrosive uh, uh, fluid. So I think when it comes to the production challenge, uh, we need to look at it from two uh, angles. One is uh, corrosion, generating iron and the material uh, suitability. The other is uh, scaling, right? Um, so uh, both corrosion and scale are the key challenges that what we see in the 
um, in the geothermal fields, either it's a green field, uh, like uh, what we see today, for example, in Canada, um, uh, this uh, sedimentary geothermal application, as well as uh, uh, brown field in Indonesia, Philippines, that we see that uh, the power output is declining because some of these uh, mechanical or chemical uh, issues due to corrosion and scaling. The other uh, component we need to understand is the geochemistry of the resource, right? Uh, are we doing enough uh, research uh, and do we understand the uh, geochemistry uh, of the resource? And for geothermal resource is much more important uh, and it requires more attention because when we have equilibrium versus disequilibrium, when your temperature and pressure is changing, we will have different challenges. So. Uh, so I, I would like to emphasize on the um, on the understanding of the mineral and water composition to see that what is, for example, potential of the zinc sulfide, lead sulfide, iron sulfide, or iron carbonate in the production system. What is the relative uh, saturation of this within the formation uh, prior to uh, precipitation? Right, because this is something that's happening during this uh, thermal cycling and pressure changes um, uh, during the injectivity. Also, what is the composition of injected water? So what, what do we uh, get from the reservoir and what it goes back to the reservoir? So, so both of these uh, components need to be uh, understand. We need to uh, we have a good understanding and tools to model of the rate uh, of the scale and corrosion in the geothermal and how we can bring the right chemical, which is stable at this temperature. So the chemical treatment is, is uh, very crucial because some of these uh, chemical uh, components might not be stable at that high temperature. When we are talking about supercritical, we need more research, we need uh, more uh, technology development uh, that can carry these, uh, uh, these uh, challenges in supercritical. Yeah, I, I would like to add two points on to here. Uh, also, it's just um, rather than like a, a normal supercritical system where you would just drill into a fracture filled with supercritical fluids, you kind of have to accept whatever the fluid is. However, because we are injecting the water, there's the possibility, and I'll just say possibility at this time, of controlling the chemistry of that fluid to some degree. If you know what the lithology is and you have an idea what the PT conditions are, you can use that uh, potentially in the design process. The, the other point I would bring up is um, the, we do in the geothermal industry have um, tools to uh, mitigate the effects of corrosive waters and, uh, you know, high TDS waters. If you look at the Salton Sea, um, they do this on a daily basis. Um, they have figured out probably what is the hardest chemical problem <laughs> around. And so uh, these tools to mitigate these issues already exist. So uh, as far as on the surface. So I think that that's important to keep in mind is that we don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel here. There are technologies we can use. Good. Thank you for that answer from, from both of you. I think both of those are, are very important points to think about. And I think that's it. It is the, the idea that we are, we are able to model it and look at it from the different angles to assess what may need to happen and be able to adjust as we are producing, but also that it isn't that different compared to fluids that we're already producing. We're already producing 
pretty, I guess, dirty fluids, for lack of a better term, that require some significant mitigation efforts. And so it's not going to be that difficult. It will be a challenge, but it's not a challenge that that the geothermal industry can't face. Yeah, that's right. I mean, silica mitigation is pretty common throughout the world. That's a important thing to know. Now, this this announcement of super hot rock development at Newberry Volcano was announced, I think, around late September 2021, which in my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong, that is kind of the beginning of super hot rock development, whether you want to say worldwide, but this is kind of the first first project for SHR, super hot rock. And as far as my understanding, please please correct me, I, I see this as still being in that modeling phase of development. So how far away are we from super hot rock electrons being produced and being put on the grid? Well, this is a tough question. Uh, I will do my best to answer it without uh, going into too many details. So let me um, give a high level overview of what the plan is. Uh, the plan is effectively to have stages of de-risking and you're exactly right. It starts with modeling. Um, the second stage will be to test our stimulation technologies and methodologies in a well at Newberry. And so we are going to test what we think are specific critical technologies in order to make this happen. The uh, next step after that will be to develop a doublet system, run fluid through the doublet system, and make sure that it adheres to models or improve the models that we already have to better match the data, uh, as well as maybe any improvements we can make to reservoir development. And then the next stage from there would be to build out the power plant. Uh, we believe that with adequate funding, you know, there's there's the uh, caveat there. We can get we can get there in four or five years. And one of the reasons why we can do it maybe quicker than others is that we own the property. Um, we have many of the permits in place. We have water in place, um, and so we have a pretty big leg up, I think, in terms of just existing infrastructure. And um, yeah, and to be clear, I, I also want to go back to the economics a little bit. I, I talked a little bit about it matching natural gas. Um, this is an important thing. We believe that an nth of a kind. So after you develop several of these and you kind of, you know, got the cost down on certain technologies, that you can get to about $30 to $50 a megawatt hour. Um, that's base load capacity. That's kind of where we see the target. That's what we're targeting. And that's, that would be an nth of a kind development. Uh, and, and with those <clears throat> with those prices, you can probably develop geothermal around the world. Um, it, because you're doing EGS and you're creating your own reservoir, you can potentially do this anywhere, and you can do it at a competitive cost. So the sky's the limit once you prove this out. And I want uh, to highlight uh, what is the role of uh, Baker Hughes in this picture, right? So this partnership with Alter Rock and University of Oklahoma and entering to this topic is very important for us, right? So we are a technology company. Uh, we have developed uh, a lot of technologies for high temperature, high pressure systems. But again, this type of opportunity allows us to expand our technology, right? 
we would like to focus on range of uh, emulating very high or supercritical geothermal conditions, testing high temperature material and components from uh, bottom hole assemblies, uh, pumps, chemicals for corrosion and scale inhibitors. The other topic that we are working is uh, high temperature packers for zonal isolation because that is another component which is very important for EGS system. High temperature propent and uh, also when it comes to injectivity, what type of uh, injection fluid uh, with proper viscosity in order to enhance permeability. The other uh, component is active monitoring because we believe the field management requires monitoring. So we are uh, developing our, our own fiber. Uh, so uh, down hole measurement and sensor with fiber optic and macro seismic is another important measurements that can be controlled and monitored with different suite of artificial intelligence software that we are developing within Baker Hughes. So technology, hardware, as well as digital enablement is something that we are focusing and we would like to be partner uh, with Alterock and other customers that they are de developing projects in this harsh environment and make, make them economic for them, right? Because we want to reduce the risk by uh, um, by improve the system performance ultimately. So this type of collaboration is 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 really on top of our list, and, and not only on the technology development, but on the project management and the execution piece. Yes, thank you for for that. That was actually going to be my next question: of what are those most important advances needed for super hot rock? You just listed propens packers, fluids, active monitoring, and, and holistic project management and kind of the, the holistic modeling. Was there anything else that you think is really that, that one thing we need in order to develop super hot rock? One, one more thing I want to highlight, uh, uh, because when it comes to power generating geothermal project for super hot rock, um, uh, we need also to look at it from the, uh, the turbine side, right, uh, based on the resource. So um, how we can improve the efficiency of the surface side, right? So we are looking at this uh, non-metallic piping that we can uh, use uh, to reduce the issues of the corrosion, because corrosion is not happening on the subsurface system. Also, it can happen on the surface system, and it can uh, really delay the project or, uh, or power generation. So we are not only um, working on the subsurface system technologies, but we are developing high enthalpy uh, turbines. Uh, this is something that we have in our uh, turbo machinery and process uh, uh, part of uh, Baker Hughes, and as well as the uh, multiple digital ecosystems uh, to link subsurface system to surface system. Yeah, and I, I want to highlight some of the stuff that Baker Hughes has already done. So I just, for people who are unaware, um, we have drilled to super hot uh, rock conditions already. So in IDDP, in Italy, in Japan, they have drilled into these resources. Um, especially in IDDP, they used a lot of Baker Hughes tools uh, and different technologies. And so we see them as a, a great and fundamental partner going forward. Great. Thank you guys for that. Oh, and I, I just want to give some context to that. Sorry. IDDP, for all those who do not know, is the Iceland Deep Drilling Project. And it's probably one of the largest, a supercritical um, 
I guess, academic projects uh, in the world, and they are drilling multiple wells um, into supercritical conditions um, in a volcanic system in, in Iceland. Thank you. Thank you for adding that. So with that, I want to shift gears a little bit, ask a few final questions that are maybe tangentially related, but maybe not related at all. The, the first one, what is the most important book you've ever read? I want both of you to answer. Feel free to just jump in whenever. This is a tough question. Yeah, for me, <laughs> I would like to uh, talk a little bit about the technical books that uh, it's really helped me to understand. I think uh, one of the uh, one of the books I really like it, and it really helped me to understand the subsurface was the uh, geomechanics book by Mark Zoback. Uh, that was that was a very good book uh, in order to understand the importance of geomechanics. If you look at few years ago, nobody was talking about geomechanics, right? And when unconventional started in terms of horizontal drilling, uh, hydraulic fracture stimulation, the key component was missing and nobody was understand was the geomechanic characteristics. So I, I would really encourage you to, to, uh, to have a look on that book. Uh, some other books on the energy transition. This is this is one of my passion, and I would like to see that how we can transform the global energy system. And uh, renewable is one of that. But in order to move toward this uh, net zero and uh, energy transition uh, mission, uh, we need we need to have a holistic view about that. What this uh, global energy system looks like in next few years. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow Ghazal's lead and do technical books. I I would reiterate that um, Mark Zoback is a great book. I, I learned a lot um, from going through that textbook. Uh, I'd also say Ronald DePippo, um, Geothermal Power Plants, is a great book. Uh, and then Malcolm Grant, and I forget who the second author was, but also Geothermal uh, Reservoir uh, Geothermal Reservoir Engineering. Um, he's he's based out of New Zealand. That was also a critical book. So those three books are kind of uh, some of my go to. Um, uh, I guess, uh, references, uh, if I, I want to know how to calculate something or kind of look something up. All right. I do have geomechanics, but the other two, I don't remember if I've ever read. And I know, I know the Rhonda Pippo book is one that I need to put on my bookshelf. <laughs> yeah, I know. Next... If you want a good overview of uh, geothermal power plants, it's, um, yeah, it's definitely, it's very illuminating. Yes. So the next question, when will we be net zero as a society? Okay. So when when you listen to scientists and economists, they agree that the transitioning to net zero emissions the uh, economy by 2050, which is uh, which is what most of the uh, uh, most of the people are talking about. So Staying on it requires a massive deployment of all available clean energy technologies, as I mentioned. And renewable is one that uh, one of them, EVs, energy efficient building retrofits. And, and we need to develop technology and we need a complete transformation of the system. And we need to do it between now and 2030 to, to reach our goal by 2050 on net zero.
I have no words. That yeah. is a, that's a great answer. And I, I, it is, it's one of those things that we, we have those targets of 2050 and really figuring out how and implementing it and what it takes. Those are the things that, that I guess we don't always talk about, but we need to be, and we need to be talking about it today. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, predicting that far out is difficult, but here's the way that I think I see it in my, in my frame of reference is that I think you can do a lot with existing technology. So wind and solar and batteries, it can get you a decent amount of the way there. But at some point, if you want reliability in your system, and you know, we all want to be able to turn on the lights when we want to turn on the lights, um, at some point, you're going to need uh, something to back it up, right? Um, you're going to need like a reliable source of power because if you have too much uncertainty in the system, right, it's going to, it's going to cause problems. And those problems are going to basically translate into higher cost. So at, at some amount of penetration, the current technologies that we have are going to start making the cost go up. And so you, you're going to need solutions like geothermal, nuclear, or, or something along those lines. I, I firmly believe that geothermal is that solution, but um, you will need some kind of base load renewable energy source. And so I think it is limited to uh, how fast we get those online. So we're not going to get to zero without something like that. And the question really is, how quickly can we develop these technologies? I like that answer. And I, I agree. And that's pretty much what I, what I always go back to is that it is, it is dependent on the base load because the base load is the foundation of, of the energy grid. And as we are shifting to electric vehicles and as we are trying to electrify everything, ultimately the grid is, is the most important aspect of, of getting to net zero and decarbonizing. So I, I really like that perspective that we, it is important. It, it, it is directly related to how quickly we can put green baseload power on the grid. Yeah, I think that is, I think that's right. Um, I think without that, it's going to be very difficult to get to net zero. So the last question is what one question do you have for me? So, Joe, we are talking about this uh, uh, reaching to net zero emission by 2050. And from different reports, like Enron report and other reports, we see that this requires investment worldwide. Uh, and it should be triple compared to what we have now uh, by 2030, and it will be around $4 trillion. So how we can, with, with your podcast, with your connection, some uh, company like Baker Hughes as a project develop, uh, uh, developer partner on the technology side uh, with companies like Alterock and so many others, how we can um, get more investment attraction in this baseload green source of energy like geothermal, which if you look at the geothermal, uh, the, the value stream is beyond power, right? We are talking about lithium extraction, we are talking about green hydrogen. So there are um, other uh, value streams. So how we can attract more investor to this domain 
to reach to this 250 uh, emission net zero net zero emission uh, goal, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and I think any of us in geothermal have have pondered that question of how do we get more investment, and I'm sure we've pondered it. Have lost sleep over it, trying to figure out how to drill the next well. I I think that there are are two very important parts to to I guess exciting investors about geothermal. One of those aspects is is basic understanding, because not everybody understands that that. 70% of residential uh, energy use is heating and cooling. That is one of those aspects that is part of that geothermal product stream that we can utilize. Some people don't understand that there is lithium in, in, in some situations, economic quantities, presumably or potentially, in geothermal brines. And that ultimately goes directly into the the decarbonization and and the lowering the footprint of electric vehicles. So I think that kind of baseline knowledge and and just public relations and sharing that that story is part of it. So that way people can all see the entire value chain of geothermal. The more the the how that I see and something that has kind of excited me as of late is the idea of crowdfunding and crowdsourcing these larger scale projects. And this is maybe one of those moonshot ideas, but because there is, because there is this uh, inherent risk with geothermal, I think that that my understanding is that is always kind of pushed investors away until the very end. And that has always made made investment tough because you have to get through what what our industry calls the valley of death after you've drilled your first few wells, but then you need to get the financing and and actually build a power plant to produce the electricity. I think that crowdfunding and and the idea of putting a power plant on on the blockchain and and basically turning it into its own cryptocurrency i think that is those are some of the ideas like decentralized finance to to potentially fund these projects in a way that is not finding necessarily one large environmentally focused private equity group but it may be a collective movement of ESG focused investors. And, and I think you can, as you point out, there are large investments occurring. BlackRock is one of those that has an ESG focused fund. And there are other large private equity groups that are climate impact focused funds. And, and I think the idea of being able to just spread that that risk out across investors and across a a larger area than just one one big fund may be 
may be something that happens in the future. I would not be surprised if there is a crowdsourced geothermal power plant before 2050. Actually, Joe, I just want to comment here. I believe there is already one um, being built. I yeah. So I've I've seen I've seen the El Salvador. Yeah. So El Salvador. I have not caught up. I've not kept up with the El Salvador recent recent announcements and the uh, the Bitcoin city that is being purely purely um, energized by a geothermal plant that's being built to run all of the Bitcoin mining. Uh, I did see maybe years ago, there was a crowdsourced geothermal project, but I, I've never heard anything beyond the first announcement. But El Salvador recently, that that could be the first. But I don't know if that is really crowdfunded as opposed to, I guess, a Bitcoin funded, which is kind of a crowdsourcing. It's we're starting to get into the weeds here. Yeah, we are. But uh, no, it's interesting. I, I I thought about it too, and I, I think there are some examples popping up already. I guess the point. Yep, yep, and there are there are companies kind of doing this in oil and gas, doing this crowdsourcing or or finding finding multiple investors to invest into new drilled wells that that kind of goes with this crowdsourcing idea. And I think that that is a model we're going to see more in the future in general investing. And I think that I think that geothermal is one of those perfect storms of of the environmental movement plus low carbon energy plus long-term potential that that off that is very important to it it needs that that kind of de-risking investment de-risking by being able to throw a hundred dollars at it by ten thousand people as opposed to a hundred people all putting in their ten thousand or a hundred thousand dollars. Right, Matt. Did you have a question for me? Yeah, no, I do. I I'm really interested in your podcast because you do take such a wide breadth of um, uh, of the, the issue. So the the carbon issue. You, you talk with oil and gas people. You talk with uh, CSS, um, and I, I just yeah. I'm curious as to, uh, given that you've kind of looked at the whole terrain, what area do you think you see getting the most traction at the moment? And why do you think that is? That's a good question. And it, it's an, it's tough to say because I think right now there is a, there's still a a disconnect in my perspective there's still this disconnect between oil and gas and and everything else and i know that's different for say baker hughes is working in in all of these areas and 
larger companies like BP and Chevron, they are investing in in multiple technologies and investing in the energy transition. But when you talk to smaller companies, they they may not be looking at necessarily trying to buy renewable energy in order to decrease their carbon footprint, but they know that that ESG metric is there. So what I see is a a heavy emphasis on on increasing efficiencies in in their core competencies. So for oil and gas, that's that's production. And what they need to do is de- they need they decrease their carbon footprint by increasing the efficiency of of energy production. And and then with the larger companies, they are I see a, a very similar acquisition and merger kind of style. They are going in and they are buying the renewable energy companies that are doing doing their projects well. They're investing in them so that they can they can find that very quick and easy transition. And I I, I say that in the in the best way, not like a it's not a flippant way. I think that is that is a natural way to go when you want to grow and when you want to grow in a specific direction, you go and buy somebody who's who's doing it well. So that's that's kind of what I've noticed. And I think it I I keep going back to this the same recording I did recently with a company, Aviva, and what they see and kind of the roadmap that they laid out that I think as anybody thinks about the energy transition, they they can see this. The the first steps are increasing your efficiencies. So that way you decrease your your carbon footprint by just decreasing the energy use that you that you currently have. The next step would be implementing and kind of replacing fossil fuels with low carbon fuels. So starting to put more solar, more wind on the grid, but doing it in a way that you're not, as you point out, you don't want to decrease the reliability of the grid. You need to do it in a piecewise fashion. So that way you don't lose reliability, but ultimately you're decarbonizing. And then kind of the final steps are getting us over that last that last bit of there's always going to be some amount of oil production or some amount of hydrocarbons needed, which means we ultimately need to be sequestering some of that carbon that's produced. And we ultimately need to shift off of fossil fuel-based transportation, which means figuring out how to decarbonize uh, critical mineral production. It means decarbonizing fuels, which could be hydrogen, could be ammonia, could be could be something else. And I think that that is, I think we are kind of early on in that stage or really companies are, are in their silo and they are happy in their silo. So for a, an oil and gas company, they're happy making the most efficient oil and gas that they can make and decarbonizing in that way. Whereas a, a hydrogen producer, they are happy working on something that they may not see getting implemented for five years, but there are angel investors who see the opportunity for hydrogen in, in the future. 
I don't know if that actually answered your question, but no, it, that's no, what it, I got. It, I, no, it did actually. I, <laughs> basically, everyone's looking at their core competency. That's what's getting traction. That's, yep. Uh, increasing the efficiency of whatever they're doing at the moment. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, no, that's good to know. Thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. And Matt Gazal, thank you for joining me on the show. Before we sign off, is there anything else you would like to say? I can, uh, I can, uh, thank first I want to, uh, appreciate you, Joe, Matt. Uh, I really enjoyed this discussion. Uh, great topic. And I, we are so uh, glad that we are working uh, with Ultra Rock uh, on this uh, uh, new uh, energy frontier, uh, super critical, super hot rock. I want uh, to mention that net zero by two, 2050 requires huge leaps in clean energy innovation. So emerging technologies in, uh, for geothermal and enabling geothermal energy to be economic requires different type of technology. We discussed about EGS, abandoned coal mines, multi-stage stimulation, repurposing oil wells, super hot rock, advanced geothermal system, direct lithium extraction, also and uh, different technology on the drilling like millimeter wave drilling. And then when you link that to the revenue stream uh, in our customer landscape from hydrogen or green hydrogen production, lithium extraction, CCS by injecting the CO2 as a fluid injector, uh, injection. I was reading about this Bitcoin mining in Latin America, or uh, you ha- you touched on that, uh, Joe, uh, that how oil and gas company can make their operation efficiencies by using, for example, geothermal or, uh, or other hybrid renewable uh, combination, as well as heating, cooling, and uh, some uh, uh, agriculture and residential application. So the clean energy innovation must accelerate rapidly. And it cannot be happen unless we really collaborate together. So I want to highlight on the collaboration to demonstrate and deploy. And it requires research and development. So we, uh, it, requ- it requires funding, working with government and the private investors to uh, deep dive on some of these challenges and develop the right technology and process and uh, I want to uh, end uh, my part that we together, we can play a significant role in this transition by boosting innovation. And thank you so much for having me in this podcast. You're welcome. You've been a, a great guest. Matt, what do you have to say? Um, I think I've, I've been working in the geothermal industry now for, um, let's say, oh God, it's been almost 12, 13 years now. Um, and this is maybe one of the most exciting times, um, that we, that I've seen in, in that 13 year period. Um, there's a lot of innovation going on. There's a lot of startups. It's pretty exciting. So I would just, um, tell everyone out there who's listening to start engaging because there's a lot of interesting work going out, uh, going on. And, um, there's a lot of data that is available for free. I mean, a lot of people are publishing the results. Um, it's free to the public to access. So. If you're interested, um, start engaging and um, welcome to the community. Well, Matt Gazal, thank you 
very much for joining me on this episode. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple things will help these stories reach a wider audience. And if you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And if you ever get bored working in the same location, if you're in the Houston area, I encourage you to go check out the Canning co-working space. If you mention OGGN, you can get a free day pass. It's where I am whenever I'm in Houston. And it's also where OGGN has their monthly industry mixers. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story you want to share, send me a message on LinkedIn or send me an email. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.